This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode from Protectsake. You may have already listened to our episode on online content and social media with journalist and author Aoife Barry. Just to refresh your memory, Aoife Barry is the former assistant news editor of the journal Dali and has written the book Social Capital, a non-fiction book that discusses life online in the shadow of Ireland's tech boom. We had a very long chat with Aoife about all things social media and online content, which you may have heard in our main episode, but there was so much more that we simply could not fit in. So in this exclusive bonus episode, you can hear the complete discussion going more in depth on social media pylons, online toxicity, content moderation, and being a journalist online. Because of the length of this interview, we did bounce around quite a bit. So if you want to find the bits that were not in the main episode, you can check out the show notes. However, I recommend listening to the full interview uninterrupted because it's just a really, really great discussion. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did and be sure to come back next week for an all new episode. Welcome, Eva. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on to talk to us about this today. Thanks for having me. I feel like I'm in, on the right podcast to be talking about this. <laughs> and uh, you certainly know a lot more than I do about a lot of the tech stuff. So I'm looking forward to hearing your your many insights as well. So yeah, thanks, Mill. Oh God, we've got three interviewers around the table. This I know, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> We're all going to be interviewing each other yeah. rather than answering questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to start with asking you uh, kind of what we talked about ourselves as well is um, how online would you consider yourself to be? It's interesting. When I was listening to you talk there, I was thinking that I often think like I'm too online. But what I actually mean is for myself, I spend too much time on my phone, mm-hmm. on apps online because I'm not actually like yourselves. I'm not on a load of different apps like I'm on Twitter, Instagram and Be Real. I love Be Real. It's like the unsung little hero of, of Big social fan. apps. Big yeah. fan over here. If we're lucky, we'll get the Be Real notification while we're in the <gasps> studio. Wouldn't that be great? Um, which would be great. Very yeah. meta. So like I, I really, I started like yourself, like going online quite young, like in a friend's house. Um, I would, we'd like, I think it was kind of on, we'd have a half day from school on a Wednesday. And I distinctly remember that we'd go on the internet in her house sometimes. Um, and that was quite kind of formative for us. And again, I remember being a teenager and going on online on um, in kind of chat rooms. So, you know, specific places where you could go into chat rooms and go in, go onto them via like your friend's computer or go onto them via um, like an internet cafe or like a space in a place that wouldn't normally have the internet that they'd just set up like, you know, kind of different computer terminals and you could pay like, you know, a pound or whatever and go on. So that was like my formative um internet involvement and then like yourself I followed through and, and joined like MySpace, Bebo I think it was even on Friendster temporarily like I joined all the sites you're supposed to join Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm someone who's like a real internet nerd who spent a lot of time like you know investigating the whole of the internet but I really got into whatever I was into so I was really into forums spent a lot of time like too much time on forums I would think when I was in college um, and as I got older then went you know and joined social media so in my head I spend too much time but that's really like that I don't like the fact that I kind of automatically pick up my phone and go onto Instagram or Twitter like hundreds of times a day um, and you so quickly yeah. lose time that's oh my god like an hour is of. gone yeah yeah like I've gone open the app not even with any intention mm-hmm. and I think there's a, there's um there's lots of uh commentary around this like it's the unintentionality with which we use yeah. these apps and and interact with our phones in this way you go in and it's just like a habit 
or boredom yeah. thing. You have no intention out of it. And then half an hour of your life is gone. 40 minutes here, like an hour of your life gone. Yeah. And like you're you're giving what I also feel like is like you're giving your attention like to these apps and to these companies and along with the attention you're giving as you detail on your podcast and the work you do so much more than just the attention, you know, and stuff you don't think about and because you get access to the sites for free and because we have this tradition of it's free to join Facebook, it's free to join Twitter. There's no like friction really when it comes to joining the sites and we don't have a history of there being a lot of friction. So we very easily are able to join them. But it's really only like much later that you start thinking about the price, like the unseen price that you've had to pay um, that was kind of there in, uh, you know, um, I suppose like a magic ink or whatever, invisible ink while you're signing up for um, for Facebook. And like there's this really good book um, by Jenny O'Dell um, called um, It's About the Attention Economy, but it's, I can't remember the name off the top of my head now, but I'll remember it in a, se- in a second. Um, and it's all about the attention you give to the internet and the attention you give to social media. How to do nothing, sorry, is the name of the book. And I remember reading that on the Lewis, and I think I talk about it in Social Capital, where I was reading the intro. Her intro was like such a manifesto for like get away from these kind of, you know, capitalist apps that just want your time and your data and your attention and embrace the world and go look at birds. And I was like, wow, this is, I mean, I'm almost emotional. It's amazing. And within like five minutes, I was back like rooting in my bag for my phone to go on some bloody app to see what people are talking about on Twitter. Um, And I hate that I've fallen victim to the like addictive, um, you know, kind of tricks that they put in, like the, you know, never ending scroll, which developed in our lifetime um, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah I feel sure. guilty Doesn't about it. But the, the developer of the like button, is it? He hates it. Hates it. Yeah, regrets it. Like yeah. a lot of the people do turn around and say, oh, maybe I actually shouldn't have had this role that I did. But like nobody seems to think at the time about the impact of what they're actually doing beyond the the positive impact that they wanted to have. Mm-hmm. And then I think we're reaping the the bad rewards of all the negative impact of these things that's, that's actually gone alongside of the positive stuff too. And um, you talked as well about, you know, there's a monetization side of it that you bring up in social capital. Like, you know, there's, you know, being online is almost a requirement now for everybody. Like, you know, even through their jobs, if online isn't their job, but like, you know, entrepreneurs, um, science communicators, authors, entertainers, yeah. like they all are kind of required to be on social media, almost like a marketing tool. Yeah, completely. And there's like two sides to it. So there's the visibility side where, you know, say people like ourselves, we want to be visible online to show that we do a certain job and to show that we know what we're talking about and to show I've done this work here, I could do there because potential employers might be paying attention or, you know, just potential, I suppose, contacts, anybody who might want you to do something. And just to show like, you know, you've been in the industry for a long time. So it's almost like you're kind of rolling CV is how you're using um, the internet. But then there's the people who need to be on it because they've created a job around their presence being online. And that's been so interesting. And it's really, you know, I've talked to people in the book where like it's really open up the world to them. And it's like, you know, like my sister makes her living from, you know, doing travel planning and running her own company. And that's all because she decided to go traveling and set up an Instagram account. So that's brilliant. But that's also brought with it these things that I think can be troubling and maybe damaging. You have the influencer culture where people have been able to set up their own companies as themselves. But as a result, that has kind of had to self-moderate as time has gone on and they are maybe more exposed to negative behaviour from people. And then also the likes of ourselves where you want to be visible online, but like, shouldn't you be entitled to your own privacy or like, should you feel like you have to be online all the time? Um, As a journalist, I think about it a lot because I, as a freelance journalist now, I want potential employers to see me and to know what I'm doing and I want to show I made a good decision. But sometimes I don't feel like putting stuff online. Sometimes I don't want to be on the internet. Sometimes I don't want to be visible. Um, And that 
that kind of visibility question is an ongoing one, I think, for people. Um, some of the younger people I talked to wrestle with it a lot less than those of us who grew up with the Internet. Like when, you know, they grew up with the Internet kind of fully formed and they don't have a lot of guilt, I think, around it. But I think yeah. older people have a bit of guilt. I do think, though, is there an element there that being older and wiser as well, mm. it's like it because when I was younger, I put a lot more stuff online than I do now. Like Same. that's just something that I do. And I think that's just you do whether it's be- because of the internet or digitally or not. I think you just give a bit more of yourself yeah. when you're younger. I think you're more free to give more of yourself then and then you get older and you maybe become a little bit more protective of yourself because of lessons that you've learned of, on doing yeah. that. So I think maybe there's an element of that to that kind of different different generations approach it differently because I think maybe they're not yet jaded about having to give away a lot of themselves online. Yeah, that makes sense because I'm thinking of one of the interviewees I talked to was like 25. So like you know, I'm way more than 10 years older than him. So I've had it, you know, I've learned a lot as I get older, you get more mature, you learn life lessons and stuff. Um, But I do think it's interesting too, particularly the generation that we're that we're in, but I think it's probably the same no matter what age you are, that giving away information online when you're first starting to be on social media is a way of, you know, gathering a community and friends and friendships. And um, it's like you have to give away some of the information about yourself in order for people to know you're a real person, to to kind of connect with them over your shared interests. So I dropped all these little breadcrumbs about myself willingly because it was how I made friends. And I've loads of friends that are friends of mine in real life now because of what I did on the internet um, or on social media when I was a kid. And as I willingly gave them information, they could see me for who I was and I could be a person online. But I do think the older you get, the more you analyse what you're putting online. But also that's because the nature of social media has changed so radically from even, you know, 15 years ago, where it feels like things don't disappear as easily as they used to. Like MySpace, all my stuff's gone. Bebo, you probably can't find a lot of my footprint online from those days, but now you can find a footprint very easily. They figured out to commodify it is what happened. Yes, exactly. And like it it made billion, trillion dollar companies out of our data and our willingness to share things online. So I think like those... that early internet absolutely built friendships and communities mm-hmm. and uh, people who would never have known each other if not for an internet connection, mm-hmm. like from all over the world. I'd like to hear from both of you, actually, since we're all having a big roundtable chat here. <laughs> I feel this idea that big tech took over the social internet means that everything feels transactional now. Yeah. It's you mm-hmm. putting bits of yourself online, having to weigh up the data privacy costs of that. You even have warnings now when you ever visit any website with the privacy directive and stuff like that uh, having to weigh up what you're given uh, what you get back from that and also because people have made a career out of doing this now as well like uh, nearly every post you see also kind of comes with an ask I feel like I'm freeloading yeah. by browsing social media these days because like I see something really cool that someone created just scrolling my field my feed mindlessly mm. and then it's also like and like here's where you can tip me I'm like oh yeah I guess I better get my wallet out because yeah. I, I, I looked at the thing and I liked it so I better tip that person and it's all and I absolutely want people to be paid for their work but I'm just starting to feel a bit like I'm constantly being demanded of when I'm yeah. online. I think that's a really good point because I don't think that's something people really talk about you know and I think that I always think like, like the roots of what you're talking about there the kind of Silicon Valley incubator for a lot of the companies mm. that we that now control how we behave online and the fact that like their morals and their viewpoints and their ethics were what were built into the platforms that they created and we kind of jumped onto the platforms and had to unwittingly sign an agreement to abide by their their ethics and morals and they helped to create the sort of attitude and behaviour that takes place on those sites so 
you see something like Twitter where it kind of partly became a health site because people were very quick to jump on people and we kind of removed the idea of nuance and the arguments and all that sort of stuff. That's not because humans are really bad at nuance. It's because Twitter removed the need for us to actually involve nuance in what we're doing. Um, And that transactional nature is because like they were set up, like you're saying, as platforms to make a huge amount of money and they made a huge amount of money and continue to all because of how we behave. Um, And there's, I think there can be attitudes kind of, like capitalistic corporate attitudes of like if I'm going to be here then I'm going to have to get something out of it Mm. I'm going to have to make money out of it and there's an other side that maybe doesn't have to do with money but has to do with perception as well with if I'm going to post something it has to feed into somebody's perception of me so like I'm often thinking do I need to put that up or am I putting this post up because I want somebody to perceive me a certain way Mm. I don't really put stuff up to make money out of it but I do probably to be perceived a certain way so I think that the kind of behaviour impact of these platforms is so like entrenched in us that we actually don't always even think, you know, outside of these sort of conversations, what that impact is and what it means for human behavior going forward by the people influenced by those by those platforms. I think that's a really interesting point as well about that perception side of it, um, particularly from your point of view, because I feel again, I I don't tweet to make money. That's not like, you know, I don't need to monetize my tweets, but I feel like the perception element and that um, particularly the lack of nuance and stuff has paralysed my ability to tweet. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I just don't anymore, really. Um, I tweet safe things. Like, I, I tweet my own articles. I tweet Silicon Republic articles. I tweet for tech's sake stuff. Um, I don't tweet opinions anymore um, and haven't in a very long time because I can't fit a nuanced opinion into 280 characters. I don't know what value my voice is adding to a big old pile of noise that's already up there. And... I just don't see that really being there anymore and I feel like that's part of the reason that maybe those platforms have descended down a bit of a hole more so than they used to be. I totally agree and it's so interesting that idea of like self-censorship in a way which in some ways is good right because like I I often think before I tweet something does anybody actually need to hear my opinion on this probably not so I won't tweet it Um, but I, I, I think about like who are the people that are deciding to like remove their voices and why are they removing their voices and it tends to be women or people who are marginalized or people who are more vulnerable online. And then you're like, who's who are the people who are not self-censoring? <laughs> who are the people who are putting more onto Twitter, onto social media? Um, and yeah, Twitter, God, you could do like a million podcast episodes on how Twitter has changed our ability to like talk to each other and argue. And I'm the same. I don't want to put an opinion on there that anybody might jump down my throat about or, or say something. I sometimes tweet something and I'm like, oh no, if you read that a certain way, it might look like I'm trying to say this thing that I'm not actually saying and maybe I need to clarify I'm not actually being blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not too sure how good it is to constantly be thinking about that because, I, yeah, I you know. I panic moment one time and I don't know if anyone ever saw this tweet because it was late at night. Um, and someone I know happened to be at an event with another person. I'm not going to say anything because like, <laughs> this is not not great. Um, and that famous person, I was very excited to see them there. And I was like, oh, my God, buy them a drink. But I had forgotten that that particular person uh, was a recovering alcoholic. Oh, no. and I was like, I better delete that tweet immediately. And I, I, it was all from a genuine place. Yeah. But I just conceived of how that could be seen as somehow me being mean yeah. about that person's past, which is not what was intended whatsoever yeah. I was just like oh my god you met that person buy them a drink because I'm Irish and that's what you suggest people do when they <laughs> try to ingratiate themselves with someone. and it honestly put the terror into me and it's probably online for maybe five minutes uh, at late at night like I may never have been seen but I felt awful at the idea that I may have been seen as being a horrible person in that mm. moment and like the 
vitriol that could have come at me for yeah, that. Yeah, because you've seen what's happened to people when they've been piled on over stuff. Yeah. And I felt like before, like if you look back at maybe probably like 2012 to 2015 the kind of era that John Ronson wrote about um, in his book So You've Been Publicly Shamed that was a particular time where like there'd be really egregious things would happen and then people would pile on and then it slowly got to be like not like less egregious things but like more random people would say things and all of a sudden you have a pile on but it's, it then kind of really reached a peak after that where it felt like anybody could really be seen for doing anything and could automatically get this like hundreds or thousands of people piling on them and I, I mean while it's obviously important to hold people up to a certain type of behaviour and I'm not saying I certainly don't believe in the kind of free speech Elon Musk attitude of say mm. whatever you want on Twitter I really do, do not believe in that but there's probably a point where that sort of piling on and where that sort of like constant analysis of people's tweets to see whether or not they're saying something that's mean to somebody else where that just becomes really damaging and maybe kind of like pathological like you do see some sort of it's a big long tweet for somebody apologizing for having to go to having to apologize for going to a Taylor Swift concert because she's apparently going out with Matty Healy for the night seventy five. He's a little bit problematic. And I the spice ho- comments that he made or something. So, like yes, that. Yeah. exactly. Which are yeah. obviously not great. I mean, I I mean, I'm not saying I'm a massive fan of him or anything. He's definitely a problematic person, mm-hmm. but. You could see that that person was driven to do an extremely intense mea culpa for going to see Taylor Swift because of who Taylor Swift was possibly going out with. And that was absolute Twitter brain tweet. Like, mm. And I felt bad for that woman because I thought, of course they feel like they have to do that because they're in a certain space or they have a certain position or a certain job where it's important for them to be seen and perceived a certain way. She just but it puts them under so much pressure. <laughs> like she just kind of wanted to go to a gig. Like It's not like she was going to like some rally or something terrible. Like yeah. it really it was like... It was just really a real insight, sorry, into like yeah. Twitter behavior and how it affects us, you know. I think that's that's replicating replicating offline behavior as well, where there's a lot of pressure on people to like make good informed choices, and it's like, well, we have all this information at our fingertips, so we need to be using it at every time of day. Like when you go buy milk, you have to make sure that's from the ethical milk company and not the bad milk. Company. And it's like, but also you should be drinking milk because uh, it's bad for cows, and also you're a horrible person. Why don't you just go home and drink water and stay inside? But, and then you're not supporting <laughs> Irish farmers, and also, you know, so like you've got yeah. another reason where like it's very complicated to make yeah. decisions these uh, days when people are just you know to be alive. Yes, it is, <laughs> and it's hard. Like we all want to be. I think we all want to be good people and we all want to do our best and like we're living on a burning planet and like, you know, we have to be aware of all this sort of stuff. But like none of us are perfect. We're all going to mess up constantly. I've said stuff online and or in person where I've like, you know, thought, oh, no, why did I do that? Like on reflection, maybe that was a bit silly or whatever. And I think growing up, you have to be allowed to a certain extent to be allowed to make kind of mistakes, you know, minor mistakes or whatever, or maybe major ones. But I think having a very serious presence on social media or taking the attitudes of people on social media um, as a kind of a, um, like a green flag to like, yes, you're a good person or you're a bad person is always going to end up with you feeling really guilty for probably very minor things. You um, literally can't please everyone. No, you can't yeah. in any. And sometimes there is valid differing arguments. Definitely. For all yeah, the and again, sides. like I say, I'm not saying if you're like a racist homophobe yeah. that yeah. you should be allowed to say, like I really <laughs> want yeah. to clarify yeah. that. But I mean, just like, it's very, very minor infractions that people are 
being hauled over the coals for. It's a bit like the good place, isn't it? That like realisation where like actually it's impossible to be a good person ultimately if every decision is like gone down to the minute detail of well, well those tomatoes were not organic. You're yeah, a terrible yeah. person for buying those tomatoes from a local person. How dare, <laughs> like how dare you, you know? Yeah, yeah so I, I think that's really, really hard. And I think um, another thing that you mentioned uh, in the book is, you know, social media is a difficult place for loads of people to be. Um, of loads of different reasons but um, I suppose women is a particular category that we have to talk about as three women sitting around the table yeah. right now who are on social media um, that is something that's a very unique experience I suppose for social media and, and, and we spoke earlier that you do have your own experience with that as well in, yeah. a, in a sort of a minute area but I don't know is that like just a thing that's going to keep being a thing it's like the worst part of like society boiled into social media of like yeah. that area of sexism and going after women in particular just because they're women yeah definitely and I kind of you know I feel like you know I'm, I'm sure many many people have said that social media is a reflection of greater society in the sense that like the same issues that you're going to have offline you're going to have online so if there's sexism in real life there's going to be sexism in your digital life as well and that we can't necessarily unfortunately expect that the, that utopian ideal of the internet being this like wonderful place is going to you know it's going to kind of be reality but because that is the case, or sorry, despite the fact that is the case, there haven't been any kind of guardrails or any mitigation being put into the social media sites to even deal with that sort of behaviour, which I'm sure we can talk about moderation in a minute. Um, but because of that, it means that like, yeah, you ha- you're open up to any sort of really awful behaviour if you're someone who might be a target for that sort of behaviour offline as well. So like I talked to Aoife Martin in the book, who's a trans woman who left Twitter because the behaviour towards her is just so bad. Um, but also, she kind of got tired of having to like amplify really bad behaviour to try and prove the transphobia was happening to her. So people get, end up getting caught in a bind, you know, between this is happening, but actually, should I tell people this is happening? Because now I'm just amplifying these people. Um, and I talk to people about racism as well online and that idea that you can be a target for your, you know, because of your skin colour, your ethnicity, the same way you would be, would be offline, but perhaps even worse by a greater number of people because of the fact that you can like attract so many people to to comment um, on what you're doing on a particular platform like Twitter. If you're not if you're not private, like you're kind of open to anybody. Um, so yeah, I feel really like it's very sad and depressing. I think that social media is not a safe space for people. Um, that in the quest for the quote unquote free speech online, you're actually getting an even on more unsafe place, and they're actually moving into an interesting period where you have someone like Elon Musk at the helm of Twitter where instead of making it safer you're like these places are getting like less safe for people um and just in terms of my own experience I was part of a case where six women were harassed online by a person who really targeted us because we were women like it was all women he targeted um I know one person who he assumed was a woman because they had long hair and it was a man and as soon as he figured out that it wasn't a woman didn't email that person they weren't involved in, in the court case but that really showed us that like some people really don't like hearing outspoken women who have some semblance of like not even authority or power, but like presence online. And they will try to do something to tell you that they really don't like hearing it from you. And I think a lot of women can already know that, that people don't want to hear them. They don't want outspoken, strong women necessarily in society and that you're always trying to defend against that sort of behavior so then when it really happens to you in such an egregious way it can be really like damaging for your self-esteem and you you know I definitely felt at many points like what's the point in like being on Twitter what's the point on being a journalist outspoken online if people are just going to hate you because you're a woman saying stuff to, to put it in a really 
um, basic sense, you know. Um, the case was complicated. I think the person themselves was complicated background, but basically it all would all boil down to us being women that he didn't want to hear from and he wanted to tell us and he ended up you know harassing six of us and ended up being jailed and I think that's really there's a lot of tragedies going on in that case and it's very complicated Mm. and I really have a lot of complicated thoughts about it that I discuss in the book as well Mm. Um, but I think it affected all of our behaviour as well online it made us feel like you have to be safer and, and that means being smaller online and I went through phases of like making all my accounts private and now they're now they're all public but I do watch what I put on there as a way of like saving myself from future harassment yeah. which I don't even think that's even possible but you know mm. it's just that it adds to the long history of women having to make concessions for like the society that hates them yeah <laughs> exactly you're like oh misogyny you have not gone, gone away yeah you know like if you read like Laura Bates's book about the kind of the manosphere is called men who hate women and you read that and you're like oh my god like the, the like social media and the internet is just full of men who really 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 hate women and that's just the tip of the iceberg what about if you're a black woman what if you're a gay yeah. woman like they have more reasons yeah. that they decide to hate you and and at, awful at, at this point in time trans women Jesus yeah Christ really, <laughs> like absolutely getting the most horrendous abuse online like in a really really scary scary way yeah particularly because I think that it's not just um you know person that they don't like speaks out and then they get attacked for it but sometimes social media is even used actively as a weapon like you'd mentioned honestly reading social capital was like a reeling in the ears for me like I (laughs) there were so many elements of things in online life that I'd kind of hadn't even forgotten about it, but just as I was getting to them, I was like, oh my God, I think this is this thing. And then I was like, oh, it is this thing. And it was like that lovely family from the little ad. Like, yeah. they're not online. They, they weren't nope. They weren't doing anything online. They were minding their business. Um, they were in an ad. They dared yeah. to be visible. Yeah. Yeah. They dared in to a, exist. Like Fiona Ryan and her, yeah. and her husband and In a regular kid. ad, yeah. And yeah. the social media pylon from that, that's not someone even expressing an opinion on social media. That's just people living their lives and then this like an absolute weaponizing of this like angry mob that just went yeah. after them for no reason other than who they were yeah and who they terrifying. happened to be was uh, a couple of two different races yeah with uh, a son yeah, yeah, son. Son, yeah just for anyone who isn't familiar with that story just yeah. to give that context there that's just who they happened to be and people didn't like them fronting an advertisement because that's who they happen to be. Yeah, yeah. and they, you know, like Fiona, like you're saying, wasn't really online. She was an actress and our husband wasn't really online and they didn't know anything about this. You know, they appeared in this this series of ads for Little because they were trying to buy, in their, own, buy their own home and they could, you know, earn money from doing these ads yeah. and their kids are really, really cute and they're a lovely, lovely couple and they, they were in TV ads but then they were also on a billboard and that photograph of the billboard was shared online, you know, with the message that had a hashtag um, about the great replacement which we know which is a racist theory about white people allegedly being um, replaced in Europe and immediately that got picked up by anybody who has you know sympathy with that sort of um, you know uh, opinion and within you know hours days they were just you know being targeted by people across um, Twitter Facebook and other I think she was saying other forums as well like pretty mm. pretty serious um, far right forums and like this is someone who didn't choose to go on Twitter but is targeted because of her race and her, her husband's race and her child's race and there was nothing that the Guardi said there was nothing that could be done either so they didn't even really get 
any resolution. They did a lot of media um, appearances. They went on the Late Late Show, were really worried that somebody would turn up to the Late Late Show. So they did a pre-record. Um, I thought, like, I really appreciated Fiona sharing her story because it was it could really potentially be that idea of re-traumatizing because it was really, really traumatic for them to go through. But I think she felt it was really important that people realize that you could go through all this and still nothing might happen to the people who do do that to you. Um, that is the kind of, you know, the, the shocking thing is that it happens at all. And the second shocking thing is that there's no resolution uh, to it. Um, and yeah, what they went through was you can you can even still see some of the tweets online. If you go back, um, it's really, really appalling what, what happened to them. Yeah. And there's loads of terrible content on social media, obviously not just the sexism and discrimination and racism, but like really, really horrible stuff that like, you know, not everyday users would necessarily see really graphic images, graphic videos and stuff like that. And that is um, often kind of moderated by content moderators. Um, and you actually have experience, I believe, um, from very early days as a sort of a content moderator. Yeah, well, like, I'm, like, I suppose it's funny, we were talking about that early era, like the pre-current, like, second wave of social media and the first wave of the forums. I was a moderator on a Mighty Boosh forum. <laughs> <laughs> um, my boyfriend always takes the mick out of me for being a moderator or, or even just, like, liking the Mighty Boosh. I was a really big fan of them. And um, Also, we should say mods. Mods. In, in the old slang, that's what they were mods. called. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. true, yeah. Um, and the funny thing, there is a, there's kind of a theme of, I suppose, uh, in the Mighty Beach of mods as in like the cultural social group as well. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, so I was a mod on on their um, on their forum, and it was just before they got really famous. So it was really interesting because you were like moderating people's behavior, but really what it was is you were kind of like a teacher or somebody who, or like a parent, where people could come to and be like this person said this or you try to step in and help people and we were really lucky because we weren't getting like you know terrible content on the internet but it was a really or on the on the forum but it was a really interesting insight into the fact that like a space like that where you even just had fans of one really niche comedy group gathering there was going to be like kind of bad behavior maybe occasionally or like people might not be that happy with it there had to be somebody there to keep an eye and somebody to keep things flowing and then seeing how that grew into actual content moderation where you had people who really had to do the job of like moderating behavior on Facebook on Twitter on other sites where the behavior is way more egregious that was really interesting reflecting on like my experiences like not even realizing what I was doing really was part of a history of moderation to where we are now where it's very I, problematic I don't know if you can remember but like do you know what the numbers were in terms of the community members to the number of moderators oh I'd say there was like I mean, there's probably hundreds of members to maybe like five moderators or something like that. That so seems just, manageable. Yeah. yeah. And I think we were lucky because there was generally the behavior was pretty was pretty good. But I do remember going to like a friend's house. And I wasn't living in Dublin at the time. And I remember going visiting her and being really stressed out because there was some issue happening on that forum. And it can't have been like terrible threats to anybody or anything like that. But there was something happening that I was like, I have to take care of this and I have to keep an eye on this person said this and blah, blah, blah. But people need me, exactly. And looking back now, I'm like, oh my God, Eva, what the hell? Um, and I eventually left the, left, the, left the mod role. But it really it felt it was really real. Like it was genuine people's lives. People were upset about things. People cared about stuff really deeply. Um, so yeah, that was an interesting that was an interesting period of, of time. The reason why I asked about the numbers is because like we're talking about platforms now that have up to billions yeah. of users and maybe a few thousand miles moderators like the scale just doesn't add up no and like they I think what fascinates me is like if you were to set up Facebook 
wouldn't you be thinking based on internet history that you might need moderators to moderate this sort of behaviour or just like to keep an eye on what was going or to remove the obvious stuff that people are going to post. But there was never really this like acceptance that moderators should be a part of the Facebook world. And instead it was like, okay, we'll actually tackle this when it becomes so extreme that people are live streaming murders and killings or deaths on Facebook when you know, the the genie is out of the bottle or whatever. And I just find that really interesting because it's like if if me, this random person, you know, in Ireland knows that you need some sort of a moderator on a random comedy forum, then I would imagine if you were somebody who's so clever that you could create Facebook, you would maybe think about that. But I do think that goes back, though, to the American, the kind of cultural um, idea and the, you know, constitutional idea of free speech or free expression. And I think that's built into, as Christine Bone, one of the interviews in the book was talking about, how that's built into something like a platform like Facebook. And it's it's less about let's let's moderate people be, people's behaviour than let's provide a platform for them to say and do what they want to do. And that's why the moderation came. Yeah, so no excuse though, I think. But anyway. I actually hadn't thought about the fact that that American ideal is mm. what has seeped through here. That does make a lot of sense. But I do also think like, and not even in a malicious way, but like Mark Zuckerberg was never thinking of that. The same way none of these founders ever like to think of the worst use cases of their technologies. Never. They yeah. don't ever, they only want to think of, as you said, the positive stuff, the, the best use case, the ideal user. Yeah. Uh, it's just like there's regulations that will force them in some cases to think of like things like data breaches yeah. and data privacy, data protection, all that kind of stuff. But only when their hand is forced are they going to think in that direction from their outset. Uh, even though like there are things, there are practices, there are kind of models that you can take on yeah. when you're formulating the ideas for a project that you're supposed to think of these worst case scenarios. But it's not, it, the onus isn't on that as much as it's on things like what you're going to sell mm. and what money you're going to make from it. Yeah, and that's why we end up in this situation where like, you know, I talked to Chris Gray in the book who was a moderator who's suing the company that he moderated for who were contracted by Facebook because Facebook doesn't like having, you know, it's kind of internal moderators now it tends to contract it out to different companies because of what he experienced because he had to do the job of moderating because it was happening at such a late stage really that anything was kind of going on Facebook and it is it is baffling. I mean, I understand that impetus to be like, oh, Facebook Live will be a great way that people can live stream whatever they want. But like, don't you think somebody in a meeting somewhere was like, that means they can anything? live stream anything they like. Um, maybe it's just, maybe it's a utopian ideal. Maybe it's ignorance. Maybe it's presuming the best out of your users. It's, I think it's but, selective ignorance mm. because it doesn't take too long to to ask yourself and what would be the worst way someone could use this technology yeah. to come up with some ideas. But no one wants to go down that route because anything that's going to stop their progress and that's what that will do. That will make you really stop and think if you yeah. have to think of your worst use cases. But the, oh, that's anti-progress. That's anti-innovation. Mm. Like, yeah. That's, that's not going to uh, that's going to delay forward momentum and they're all about the forward momentum. Growth, 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 scale, 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 scale. Think about questions later. Yeah. Which is like, only allowable apparently in digital spaces because yes. <laughs> I had a look because I've been so curious about this. I had a look at what kind of regulations and uh, guidance you would need to take on board if you wanted to just gather thousands of people together in Dublin. It's like a 76 page document from Dublin City Council that has wow. the guidance on that. That's fascinating when you think about like the, the that huge gap between the digital version of that and the real life one. And I'd imagine also, I mean, you've got like public order laws and things like that as well that would come into play um, in terms of people's behaviour. Not that I think people should be, you know, arrested and shoved into jail for sending a bad tweet or whatever. But yeah, it's so... It's so interesting, that idea that like, 
you know, the move fast and break things like the Google motto is like still existing in a world where we all know what happens if you move fast and break things like things bigger than like infrastructure are going to get broken, like people's lives are going to be affected. Um, And I, I don't even like I'm not a content moderation expert. I don't know what the hell the solution is, but it feels like the solution should have started a long time ago. Um, And I do think it's possible to have progress and have and to mitigate against bad behavior. And it seems so interesting that the mindset around the creation of this latest iteration of social media has has not taken on board those two things and instead is kind of blindly barreled through in a quest to like take over the world and yet never ever had to think about that. And like you're suggesting there, never really has had to pay a massive price. I mean, even if um, companies are getting fined, you know, under data protection laws, for example, which obviously are different to content moderation, but even under those laws, it's kind of like peanuts. It's like it's a drop in the ocean. It's a drop in them. the ocean. Is yeah. it going to make a difference in terms of the behavior? Maybe it will. Um, but I don't know if I'm kind of, I try to be optimistic about stuff, but I'm really curious about what the future of, of content moderation is going to be. And I have a thing in the book as well called Masnick's theory of um, content moderation at scale and the idea that it's basically Im- impossible to moderate at scale. So the more people you have to moderate, the harder it is that even if you have 99% positive impact of your moderation, there's still that 1%. And when you have 2 billion users using your platform, that's a lot of people that you're talking about, a lot of instances. Um, so yeah, I don't know if any of your listeners have any solutions. If you have any solutions to the content moderation. Like, but numbers, but put numbers on this damn thing. Yeah. Because like, you, I'm pretty sure there's a rule on how many students should be in a classroom that's overseen by a teacher. Per teacher, yeah. yeah. You know, like we we already have frameworks in place for the number of people that are needed to keep a number of people in check and behaving themselves. We already know this in real life. But for so long, because we are so far into this digital revolution, like like that I grew up with it and I'm not young. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we're still at the point where like it's still treated as this nebulous, ethereal thing. Yeah. But it's people's lives now. We are online for huge chunks of our days. Even us saying we're moderately online, I'd say we're actually still spending a huge chunk Mm. of our day interacting that way. Oh, yeah. And we've just allowed this space to be a Wild West for so long. And it's like, it's where people live now. We need to catch on. Yeah, it's just, it's it beggars belief, really. And I think, you know, that idea of assuming that everybody if everybody's gathered in the one place they're going to behave well and that it's like you know social media functions as a public square and everything like like we know that like that that idea flew away a long time ago we know it's not a public square we know it's a lot more than that and we know like you're saying it's really embedded into people's lives and it's so interesting to think about the power that those platforms have now and how they've just kind of been allowed to evolve wherever they wanted to evolve and that's really like that troubles me and it troubles me that I willingly just kind of go on to Instagram and willingly kind of take part in whatever Meta really want me to do. Um, and I don't know like if people, enough people can pull themselves away or moderate their own behaviour to try and to try and find a solution to it. But I know that, you know, there is Coco's Law, which covers harmful behaviour in Ireland. So we do have legislation here. You know, we do have the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act as well, you know, which ostensibly is about kind of regulating to an extent some of what at least what the company the platforms do about bad behavior but we still haven't hit on the perfect solution um and we're really seeing the really negative um, results of that we you know we literally have seen you know the New Zealand massacre take place on on Facebook live and I think there was a New York Times article that I was reading saying that that video was still available you know if you just go search for it and it's on the internet 
don't I wouldn't advise obviously doing mm-hmm. that but you can do that and yeah. that is really really troubling you know yeah it's troubling for everybody's lives who are online but also the content moderators themselves because there's not enough of them and the horrific things they have to look at watch decide on every day but also like I like I've seen documentaries about them and I've read the the passage the um the chapter that you did on content moderation and Chris Gray and things like that but it like it hurts my brain when I read it because the snap decisions that have to be made like and literally snap decisions like like literally seconds they spend watching thing after thing after thing after thing and deciding yes yes no no that's not okay take that down like all day long that is their whole job like that is a different realm of soul destroying yeah and you can really see if you read any of the articles about it Um, I mentioned a few of them in the book and just even just searching online there's been really good writing about like Mm. content moderation and the impact on them it's so like you can see why it would be really difficult for for people and you can see if you look for if you look on uh, kind of job sites for those particular roles, they even say on them, and I have it, I think I have it in the book as well, like basically you'll be dealing with sensitive content. So you need to be aware. So like they know that this is, the companies hiring them know it's a difficult job. And at the same time, as we're saying, the kind of needs to be done. But what, what I find interesting too is if you think of like the, the workers doing the content moderation job, how vulnerable they are in many respects because you might have people who are moving to Ireland and, and do this job but they might not realise what the kind of laws are around like employment and what their own employment rights are for example. They can be quite kind of vulnerable doing these doing these roles. Um, I talked to people who advocate for like kind of legally advocate for content moderators and they said that they often suffer you know uh, mental and physical impacts from the, the works that they're doing and then there's also the idea that a lot of the moderation for the bigger companies is, is done in countries that are not the kind of home country of the platform. So you have people maybe in the Philippines, which has kind of, I suppose, understands, the, I, have, I have been reading about the kind of cultural understanding between America and the Philippines, where it's easier for content moderators to kind of get the cultural nuances of um, American posts, for example, that's kind of a, a basic way of putting it, but that Facebook, for example, might find it easier to have content moderations in Philippines and maybe another developing country. And cheaper. And cheaper. So you have people doing the job where they're not getting paid as much as if they were working for Facebook. And also they're much more easily othered because they're not in the country. They're not American. They're in a very precarious maybe position where it can be seen as othering people doing this really difficult job and socially we might not even think about these people even saying these people sounds sounds bad but we might not think about the people doing these roles and what they need and how they should be treated and other them in a way that can be really dangerous and and kind of damaging to people so I think all of that like the geopolitical and socio-political aspects to it is really but really it is like this is like what you're explaining there is essentially it's the same capitalistic problem that yeah. you see in other industries this is the same as you wanting cheap t-shirts that you can buy every month of the year in different colours uh, and that means that someone is getting paid very very poorly to manufacture them in a country that's not known for its workers rights exactly and you want to absolve yourself of any problems with your own waste you just want to, it to be sent somewhere and processed by someone else not even thinking that the reason why they ask you to make that stuff clean and dry in your recycle bin is because a person has to handle that stuff in a recycling facility you don't want to think about that you just want to you you, you just want to exist in this society yeah. where we produce mindlessly whether it's content, content or yeah, products yeah. and you don't want to have to take on any of the burden of that or even think about it so like I think as well as CEOs and stuff don't want to have to think about this stuff we don't want to have to think mm. about it either. We really don't because 
then we have to realize we're complicit because it's because we're on the platforms that they need to be moderated. Well, partly, partly because of the people who set up the platforms. But, you know, like we're on there. We don't think about it, you know, um, and that is a really difficult place to be because it is that question of, OK, can I do anything about this? I mean, obviously, reading more and learning more and listening to content moderators is, I think, the the big, the, the kind of first place to start, because only then can we change maybe our behavior and make decisions based on that. But like you're right, Elaine, like we literally as users, we don't want to think about how we are impacted by our behavior online or how we impact other people's lives by what we do online. And I and I say that as someone who falls into that trap all the time myself. It's not like I am some just I've written a book or whatever that I'm like, well, I never go online and I'm perfect. It's like, yeah, I am doing stuff that some, you know, somebody else is being impacted from. Not because I'm posting bad stuff on the on Instagram or offensive things, hopefully, um, you know, not doing that sort of thing. But like I'm on there. I'm a number and I'm, you know, uh, adding to the workload. I'm adding to the workload <laughs> that they have to do. Um, so, yeah, it's it's so interesting when you really dig into it, you find more and more things that you're like, oh, no, this is really this is troubling to me. This is disturbing. And I don't know how much trust I have in the powers that be to try and really, truly regulate what's going on in, in some respect. People are really trying, but it's a real, like, the progress of the sites is, like, the trajectory is quite fast. And yes, that the progress in trying to kind of maintain harmony is, like, really, really slow. So, yeah, the, the balance is, the ratio is kind of off there, I think, you know. Mm. And you, you mentioned there about like, you know, people don't want to think about the impact they have on other people. And that comes into just like the regular users of like, just like spewing terrible things to people. And like that comes back to sexism and discrimination, racism and stuff as well. But just generally people being bitchy yeah. online to other people for no other reason. And, and I'm not talking about like necessarily like heavy hitter trolls mm. who are there to literally be horrible people, but just like regular people just being mean yeah. <laughs> and thinking that's an okay thing to do like totally. that you would never say out loud to someone's face the things some of you have said about <laughs> children on the toy show you should be ashamed of yourselves that's a really good example <laughs> it is because I feel like it does. it's like not real life or something you're like this is a small child is on the telly yeah. um, and there, like, there is a the history on the internet of like you know I don't know if I can curse and say the word yep, shit, you shit posting can. okay so there is that like you know in the early internet days you know people used to shit post so they'll just try to like rile people up and annoy them or they just you know trolling developed around that time too but it wasn't the kind of trolling that we you know that we think of now and there's always going to be people who are like messers or who want to annoy people like you know I'm sure if you've gathered 20 people together there'd be somebody who'd be trying to take the mick out of somebody um, but when you just have like you know more and more and more and more and more people that becomes really intense, I suppose, when it's like at scale. And also you realize that like there is a home on social media for any type of person. And that includes people who were really awful and you want to say and, and do terrible things. Um, and certain types of behavior can become acceptable in certain social media platforms as well. You know, I or or also on forums, like I talk about the forum tattle Um where people go and say a lot of really mean things about influencers yeah. on the internet. And I shouldn't even be laughing because like the stuff I yeah. have read on there is absolutely, that there is some stuff on there that's very, we'll say very eye-opening and very, very mean. And, you know, I have read posts about family members on there that are patently untrue that people believe is true. Um, So like, the people on there go there because it's a, it's a place for them to discuss and say whatever they want generally. Um. Although the the rules on the site say otherwise, so I mean, according to the owners, you can't say anything on there. Um, but yeah, there is a space I think on the internet for anybody who wants to say something mean, and like that's part of the history of it. But it's not nice when you're on the receiving end. But also going back to what we were saying earlier about you know 
trying to input nuance into characters and images and gifts and stuff like that and that's also difficult and I I also wonder as well like you know we should probably think that humour doesn't scale very well especially not specific types of humour like I mean I I was saying about people insulting kids on the toy show earlier but like I would insult my family and the children of my family I I call them jerks to their face all the time they are jerks sometimes (laughs) but that's fine within the small space of my family where there's a understanding in our little community that she's not being mean. She's just, you know, putting them in their place. <laughs> but anyway, everyone knows that it's a joke within my family, but I would know if an outsider was there and they took offence to that, I wouldn't be surprised because, yeah, I'm t- telling the kid it's an asshole. <laughs> oh my God. And that's fine if you take offence to that, but, yeah. you know, it's It has context fine. within, yeah. yeah, yeah. And like I do think that's that's something as well, like, there's an Irish sensibility and an Irish sense of humour where that's what we do to each other. Like, yeah. You only insult the ones you love. Yeah. <laughs> and you, like you really go for them. And that probably doesn't translate and that probably doesn't scale. So even if it's done in an affectionate way where you're like only having a laugh or whatever, yeah. it's not that you're trying to be mean and bitchy or anything mm. like that. You're just trying to be funny, make a joke or whatever. I don't know if that works with two billion people reading that. Yeah, totally. And like <laughs> even sarcasm. I feel like I use sarcasm all the time. It's like, you know, I know they say it's the lowest form of wit, but um, it's just kind of well, a habit. We, we do. That's what she said, jokes. So. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, which, which is worse. But like sarcasm doesn't always translate. I've definitely tweeted things or said things where I'm like, somebody who doesn't really get that sense of humour will be like, what? what is she saying? Um, and even just culturally, different countries find different things funny. Different people find different things funny or insulting or, you know, and, and that also comes into the difficulties of content moderation because you really have to understand the nuance of what people are saying to know if it's an insult or not. And as content moderation was kind of ramped up, the people that were trying to say really awful things and trying to say racist things or phobic things were finding ways of using everyday language that wouldn't appear to be Mm. offensive to now become offensive so the internet adapts like social media adapts to the challenges that um that are presented to it and so that's really interesting too to realize previously innocuous words online can take on take on different meanings and actually it's a there's a really funny story about you know the cat and mouse game of moderation there in that trying to work around the words that people use that you may not want them to use on your platform in old internet times do you guys know of the scunthorpe problem no oh this is a good one so scunthorpe is like a town in england somewhere and happens to have a four-letter word in there that you may not want used on your forums so famously you couldn't say that town on many many forums because they just like outright completely banned that four-letter word which happened to appear in this other word (laughs) Uh, and it happened with other things like if you said um I actually don't even want to say the word because it's. I'm not even going to say the N word, but the N word is contained in a word that describes uh, a type of laugh. That used to happen on the. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't even want to say yeah. the word yeah, that's not yeah, it because yeah. I kind of just no, don't want to make any implication yeah. that I'm comfortable yeah. saying that word. No, of course. But that was another one that would get blocked out if you were just trying to say a certain kind of laugh. Yeah. And I remember being very confused when that happened to me, and one of the other forum members was like, "Oh, it's because look at the." letters in that yeah. word and what they spell I was like oh oh, no. oh okay I get it yeah and yet so. and yet, and yet I, I remember that being on the Mighty Beauty form and the thing is you understood that it was fine that that was blacked out that word yep. because you were like I don't need to see yeah. this word because I understand I the like, context is that mm, is an offensive word yeah. contained within it and look I'll just say I know chuckle. what it means it's and fine. exactly I'll say whatever and I think that that was the case with with you know, with the kind of self-moderation of those forums is that they had to make those kind of decisions where should we say this word actually no this 
there's no reason to have that there. Let's get rid of it. That's fine. And as users, you kind of grew to accept when you felt that the decision was made mm. mindfully and with other people in mind, you were like, okay, there's plenty of things that yeah. we can say instead yeah. of that. And like, whereas now it's like, you feel like there might be, a, you know, a four-year argument online about whether or not a word could be used on Twitter or whatever. And there's nobody really kind of stepping in to kind of make those decisions. I suppose some people would be happy about that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to reflect back at how, how those decisions were made back then. Yeah. It's so interesting that, like, there's basically a know-your-audience kind of conversation of, like, you know, this joke of well-meaning might not translate well. But in those kind of, like, the Tattle Forum, for example... Um, that is absolutely the audience for that. And I feel like this is where social media and online content can like make the worst out of us as well. Because if you make a comment and you're not you're not necessarily a bad person and you don't mean it to be that bad, but it's a bit of a it like it's edgy, it's a bit rude, yeah. it's not very nice. And then everybody thinks you're gas. Suddenly you're like, ah. and then you might go keep going down that route of like suddenly your humor is actually quite mean all the time and you don't know how you got to where you were, but you're now bolstered up by an audience who thinks you're gas because they are all also in this little circle of meanness. Like you're you you've accidentally served the wrong audience now. Yeah, you're and, getting clout. And if if that clout and if that attention means something to you, which it does for most people in this sense that like you know we all want to be validated that's why we go on and put photographs on Instagram we're happy when we see a little like or whatever like for some people that can turn into well maybe I maybe I'm not normally like this but I get attention for it and you know I'm just going to keep keep doing it and I think with Tattle it felt like I kept thinking of like you you know being back in school and people would start like bitching about somebody like before you kind of grew up and realized like that's not really very nice um that idea of like a bitching session about someone where everybody would end up saying the me- really mean things and, and before you know it everybody's like carried away with how awful this poor person is um, as an adult you realise that's really destructive behaviour but on these forums they become like a giant version of that mm. where if you think something like oh why did she do that because that was really annoying and I can't believe blah 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 you can say it and you can have people validate you for thinking that way um, and just I, to quickly contextualise sorry the yes. Tattle Forum was essentially a place where people went to give out about influencers and every move that they made yes it's basically like it's well it's set up as a, like a discussion forum for influencers who make their money out of their presence online and there are some nice things said on there and there are positive you know threads where people talk about why they like someone but by and large my experience of it and I think anybody who goes to visit it will find that it's a place to really interrogate Mm. somebody's behaviour what they don't like about them Um, and you know during the uh, COVID-19 lockdowns there were a lot of people who were there was questions about their behaviour what were they doing it looked like that person was outside when they shouldn't have been (laughs) etc and sometimes they were yeah there was a lot of curtain twitching going on and there was you know I've seen stuff Mrs Hinch the viral kind of cleaner yes. lady who cleans her house who all the time. Cleans her clean house. Cleans her clean house. <laughs> very Which is clean. very satisfying to watch. Yeah, it is. It's very satisfying. And, you know, I'm like, maybe I will one day organise that sink, that uh, cupboard under the sink in my house and have some labelled boxes, but it won't be tomorrow. Um, Like, she comes in for, like, horrific discussion on that where you just, like, just by being on the internet and making money. Because I was so shocked by that because I was like, what are they finding offensive in Mrs. Sinch? Because I follow Mrs. Sinch. Yeah, I'm I'm not not surprised at all. Because I I just... I feel like I can tell who is probably getting a lot of hatred from these sites and I, I, there is no reason for it but I instantly just know she just seems really nice she seems yeah. happy again she's very, a woman she's getting money for cleaning her house yeah. and people yes. are sitting at home thinking well I clean my house and she's if I would have done nobody give me money the you know? stuff and the advertising and stuff like that she says when she's gotten paid for this stuff like, yeah. I honestly couldn't falter like she kind of is playing it very straight 
there's nothing extreme about her whatsoever apart from that she's very clean yeah <laughs> it's begrudgery yes. though it's begrudgery it's, it is yeah Stuff, there, there's certain people that you, and also I think and I, I don't mean to generalise but I think some of this there's an intrinsically Irish part of this where like everyone likes a person a successful person to a certain point and yeah. then they go beyond that point and everyone's like oh that person has notions it's mono complex totally. yeah. <laughs> It's a good well. it's a good term we've coined it here on this podcast. It is. It really does like it's we don't like seeing people some people don't like seeing people, you know, get to above much their station or, their or something. Yeah. But I Notions. think I think because influencing has allowed a quote unquote ordinary person who's not a celebrity to become an online celebrity in mm. some way and to make money out of just being themselves, like literally just cleaning your house, keeping your lovely sparkling clean a uh, house clean. Um some people find that really, really annoying. Yeah, that's grand. They're entitled to that. But some people take it to the extreme where they want to tear that person apart mm. in the company of other friends who want to do that on a forum. And, they're, you know, I didn't see like a lot of evidence of things being removed. I know people who've reported stuff from those kind of forums and, you know, they didn't get any reply. It's just very hard when something is said on them, I think, to see any action Um being taken if those sites are kind of specifically set up for that sort of discussion so again you've got your moderation issues and everything going on there yeah, the whole enrage and engage yeah model of things kind of exactly. trial by social media as well yeah um, and I, I mean we could, like, there's so much we could talk about forever but I do want to touch on a little bit like the journalism side of being on social media because you're a journalist yourself and a lot of journalists are on Twitter like in particular like lots of um, platforms now but Twitter in particular was is like a p- place for journalists to kind of like yeah. congregate be journalists like you know they break stuff on Twitter now before they even put up the story or they put it on the radio and things like that kind of become a personality like Richard Chambers yeah. Gavin Riley yourself yeah, would yeah. one of those I might have to know. Definitely not def- definitely not a Richard Chambers or a Cass. They do a much better job than I than I do. And they're like, yeah, like they're so good at promoting their work and like having a presence. And also not just promoting their work, but the reason why they're so good is they give you information that you want to know mm. and stuff that you have no other way really of finding out parsed by someone who knows what they're talking about as opposed to people who aren't experts just throwing anything up and I think people are really hungry for that with journalists where they're like just tell me what I need to know about this really big thing and be informed and like there are two good examples of that yeah Um, I think there's a really good way to utilise stuff like that but also there's you know ever since Elon Musk did take over Twitter there's been that kind of contentious like oh what if the platform falls completely or what if just people like like you know users stop using it and where will journalists go and we haven't quite found I think a place for that like there's a few different places oh the internet doesn't owe us anything though get a grip go outside (laughs) pick up a phone do you think there's too much of a reliance on it now I really think that we have got into a situation where like you say if Twitter disappeared tomorrow a lot of journalists would find it really difficult and like I totally and I would be one of those people partly because I, I get loads of information from Twitter it it you know it just sucks up all the information that people want to, want to give you and it's there and it's very easily accessible and it's free and um, it helps me promote my work to like 13,000 followers I'm sure they're not all paying attention but like I know I have a reach there that I don't have on Instagram and that I really kind of don't want to try and build anywhere else like I'm not interested in you know making that number change and it's been very static for a, a long time like a, that's fine with me Um, but if you did want to build your platform if you did want to get your work work out there it's really good for that and you know back in the day when I was starting in digital journalism uh, 11 or 12 years ago if something happened in Ireland anywhere you could just search for it and you'd you know if you heard a kind of a, an inkling about something like there might be an incident here or whatever you'd get it from the source on Twitter and you could find sources really easily you could find contacts 
But like, is it a good thing that we've become quite reliant on it for our workflow or just even for our mental kind of idea of what's happening in the world? Probably not because of all the issues you've talked about. But I still would be really sad to see it go because I still have a habit of using it. I still get a lot of positive stuff out of it. And I I think, you know, a lot of the future of of social media is, you know, de- like decentralized servers and sites like Mastodon where you've more of a kind of um, a community that can that can form itself and that can kind of look after itself. But by that very notion, you don't have the, the feeling of the world being on that decentralized server, you know, and that's what Twitter feels kid, like. We did kid ourselves so that Twitter was the world. Like it was that is another that's that very very true. It was yeah. a very big online community, like hundreds of millions. But we fooled ourselves into thinking that that meant that that's what society felt because this was yeah. just a a huge amount of comment guys at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like this is like taking all of your leads on what society thinks from the bottom half of the internet. <laughs> Would you really want to do that? <laughs> I mean, I think I think when Twitter really hit the sweet spot for Ireland was when it when like probably was it like 2010 or thereabouts, 2011, 2012, when people were able to communicate with each other about what it was to be Irish or to live in Ireland or to experience Irish culture. And there's a load of nostalgia and a load of connection over nostalgia. And there was a lot of, you know, um, taking stock of Irish culture in a really interesting way and connecting people through that. So you had like not the RT guide account. You had the Daily Edge site, which always had really good tweets and really reflected back what people were talking about. You had, I mean, you know, the Irish mammy phenomenon, for example. Think of that what you will. That was a phenomenon and it really captured a certain way of thinking and talking about about being Irish and Irish families. Um, and Colin Regan started that and that became its own thing. And that only that started on Twitter. And I think all of that time was really lovely in a way because we all were connecting. All of us who were on there were connecting about that kind of cultural sense of who we are. But very quickly that changed and we don't really have that you know um on there anymore and look you could argue that's a good thing too that maybe it's good not to have kind of clicks and irishness has changed and is changing and it needs to you know our presence online about that has to change too but those were like the halcyon days uh, when we'd argue about the color of dresses and stuff and <laughs> we've moved on a lot since that that dress i think it was black and and blue myself but i anyway. saw both and yeah my changed too yeah, yeah i saw both yeah very Not at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But I think Depending. Once I saw it in different lighting. And then once I saw it the other way, the white and cream way, I couldn't go back. couldn't go back to black and blue. Yeah. Oh my God. That's yeah. so mad. I love and those I, little I was a bit shook tricks. when you referred to the dress as being old internet in your book. Because I was like, Jesus Christ. This <laughs> is so old. Like, it was like 20 or whatever. It was like, yeah. This is what I mean. It was like reeling in the ears, but like specifically for like the internet. The internet. Yeah. I've got bloggers unveiled in the book. Yeah. Oh, Listen, yeah. that was a trip going back and looking at that. And what's interesting too, I think, is that like the in, a lot of the internet's kind of disappeared. You know, like a lot of the old forums are just gone. You know, like nothing really lasts forever. I, I do think we're getting more of a sense of things being kept, you know. um, I do think something, it wasn't the Wayback Machine maybe under threat in the US recently. So there are sites that do kind of collect older stuff, but there was always a sense of things kind of disappearing. There's less of that now, but it's easy to be nostalgic when you kind of can't find anything about these particular moments. But I think I managed to gather stuff that there's still evidence of online. So thank Thankfully, digital media was growing up at the same time as Bloggers Unveiled was happening. And I can tell you, there's a bit of a resurgence of old dyke memes because like my nephew was showing me, uh, it was like um, the the kind of two panel comic with the kind of ugly guy and then he has a mask. 
over his face. Oh, I'm terrible at describing memes, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is great to be on a podcast. Um, but basically, this really old meme that you will have seen, but yeah. you've been familiar with. He was showing me this, and it was like, look at this fun joke I found. And I was like, dude, I invented that joke. Oh my god, <laughs> how dare you? How dare you show me mistake me? And then I was telling him about stuff from like back in the day and like news, new grounds, new grounds. Anyway, I was wow. like, have you heard of Badger, Badger, Badger? He loved it. <laughs> Thank God for knowyourmeme.com. You can find uh, <laughs> you can find the memes link to the young the kids. Show notes to explain. This is the meme thing that yeah, I'm talking about. Yeah, I can't wait about. to see this what this is. Guy thing. I'm that very the mask. Yeah, I'm very yeah. This will probably be our busiest show notes ever. <laughs> all these little references. Um, we could talk forever about all of the things um, online. But if anybody wants to read more, they should check out Social Capital because it's a great book. Thank and you. Thank you so much for joining us, Eva. Thanks so much. Cheers. Really appreciate it. It's great. For Tech's Sake is a co-production from Silicon Republic on the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by Elaine Burke and Jenny Darmody. Thank you to Megan Fox for production, Matt Mahan and Dali for our graphics, Claudia Grande for her social media support, and all at the Headstuff team. You can follow us at For Tech's Sake Pod on your platform of choice, or let us know what you think via fortechsakepod at gmail.com. As a Headstuff Plus community member, you get access to bonus content from across the network, so do check out some of our sister shows and give them your support. And tune in next week for a new episode from us. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.